This message was presented at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. All right, we are about to launch into our second presentation. Some of you may be new, so I'm going to recap a little bit um, as we go into this, but I want to have a word of prayer before we do. This is an extremely important topic. All of our topics here at GYC are life changing by the Holy Spirit's uh, presence, and we want to pray especially that he's here with us, and we want to um, ask God to guide us in this, in this talk today. So let's bow our heads for prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, we're talking about your holy word, the scriptures. That word has changed the lives of millions of people around the world today and over the centuries. It is the living word of God. We thank you for Jesus Christ, the word incarnate. And we thank you for the Holy Spirit who gave us this word through inspiration as we studied in our last presentation. So now, Lord, as we look at the challenges that we face in the modern world today regarding the Bible, we don't want to lose faith. We want to be strong. We want to come out of this experience that we're all part of. We want to come out in your kingdom. But Lord, we're faced with challenges today. We're faced with questions today. There are young people here that are studying at state universities and at community colleges that are bombarded with a secular worldview. I spoke with someone yesterday. His name is Tim, who was told in a class that the exodus never happened. Lord, these are real questions. They challenge our faith, but they are not without answers from your word. So we pray for your Holy Spirit's guidance, humbly, thankfully, knowing that you are a gracious God who answers prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. I mentioned in the last meeting that I switched seminar topics at the last minute for GYC this year based on a request from our GYC president. And I am focusing in this seminar on a Sabbath school quarterly topic that will be studied by the World Church and all of us from April to June this year in 2020. Uh, the Sabbath school quarterly is entitled How to Interpret Scripture. And uh, I wrote that uh, quarterly with my cousin, uh, Frank Hosel, who is a theologian at the General Conference Biblical Research Institute. Uh, he taught at Bogenhofen Seminary uh, for many years in Austria. And uh, we went into this project several years ago with much fear and trembling because hermeneutics, the interpretation of Scripture, is the core of many of the things that we're dealing with today. In our church, many things that we're dealing with today in our society. Um, of course, in our society, many are not wanting to talk about the Bible at all. They've kind of decided that that's already something that should be relegated to the dustbins of myth and, and so forth. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the reason for that and where that all began but uh, this, uh, this topic is an important one. It's the first time, I think, in the history of uh, our denomination that we are studying 
as a church, as a world church, in a Sabbath school quarterly setting, the uh, issue and the topic of hermeneutics or how to interpret scripture. It's an important topic, as we have already seen, but as we will see in the next two presentations, it is also very crucial for us today. As we wrestle with different issues and questions, and one of those issues in my last presentation I will be dealing with as kind of a test case, if you will. It's very difficult to put 13 chapters of a book in four presentations. I didn't attempt to do that today, so I've taken a bit from here and there. And uh, those of you who are interested in the book, this is the, uh, not the quarterly, this is the Sabbath School companion book. Um, I have a booth here, uh, 521, and this is literally hot off the press. I got it three days ago, uh, the first boxes of books from Pacific Press. So if you're interested in this, we will have them available there, um, going into much more detail than what I can do here in this seminar. Hermeneutics is the field of study concerned with how to interpret the Bible or other sacred or literary texts. And in the beginning of our presentation, our last presentation, we talked about the origin of the Bible. How did we get what we have today? I was not able to deal with all of the vast issues concerning that. This, this topic can, can, as I tell my students many times, could, could consume us for an entire semester or two. And there are scholars who have studied this topic for their entire lives. So the, the scriptures are, are the scriptures because they have a depth to them that will never be exhausted in this lifetime. Amen? In fact, we are told that we will be studying the story of redemption and the topic of redemption through eternity. It's mysteries, it's depth of love that is beyond human comprehension. So scripture is part of that because it is the vehicle through which we have been given that plan in our experience today. Today, uh, in the second presentation, I will deal with do historical matters really matter? Then we will talk in our next presentation, I believe that's after lunch, does the, no, there's another one this morning, right? Okay, excuse me. Does the Bible really reveal the future? Prophecy and the New World Order. We're going to deal with issues of prophecy and interpreting prophecy. Again, very difficult to do in an hour, but I will do my best. And then we will end, how do we approach the Bible with serious questions? And as a test case study, I'm going to be focusing on the issue of marriage, a creation institution that is heavily under attack in our world today. It's not an easy topic. I solicit your prayers. I had four hours of sleep last night. I was praying intensively for this seminar today because this is not an easy topic and this is not an easy subject, but God is good and he will be with us today. So do historical matters really matter? Another interesting title for this could have been, and I have uh, contributed to a book some years ago entitled, Do Historical Matters Matter to Faith? Because many people today say, as long as you believe, that's good enough. It doesn't matter what the details of the Bible really are about. The first 11 chapters of Genesis, creation, you know, we know better today in our scientific age. It really doesn't matter as long as you believe that God did it somehow, someplace, some way. And this is not only an issue that is being dealt with in the secular world, this is an issue that is being dealt with in the religious world. It is impacting Protestantism as never before. 
most Protestants today have adopted some form of theistic evolution. And many, um, even in our ranks, have questioned heavily the issue of creation. So we're going to look about we're going to look at the Bible as history. We're going to look at the impact of the Enlightenment, which had a two-prong impact. One was the Protestant Reformation, and one was a secular impact as well. We're going to look at the historical critical method, uh, as well as the historical grammatical method, which is the Protestant method of biblical interpretation. We're going to then look at um, a little bit at historical revisionism, not much, and then we're going to look at. I can't help it, I'm an archaeologist, we're going to look at some new confirmational things that have recently come on, the, on board um, in recent years on, in archaeology that help confirm the history of scripture. I say confirm because we as Seventh-day Adventists and as Christians are not about proving the Bible. The Bible stands on its own two feet. It is the living word of God. To prove the Bible means placing something above the Bible and using it as a measure. We believe the Bible on the basis of faith and the basis of yes evidence, and then that evidence from below helps to confirm what we've already accepted by faith. So I want to make sure that we understand the parameters. And I know it's a very popular thing to talk about proof, but in a scientific sense, I don't like that term because of what it means. Because if you can prove the Bible, you can also disprove. disprove. That's the correlate to it, right? And uh, we're going to deal with some of that as we get to our last presentation as well. So the Bible as history. History is important. By the way, this picture and many of the pictures that I'm going to show you that are taken, these nature shots, um, are, are taken by a f former student of mine. I love former students and current students because they're just amazing, amazing. This former student is now a dentist in Alaska and has taken up photography, not as a hobby, but as a vocation, I would say. Um, he, has, he has been, a, <laughs> GoPro has taken him now as an official uh, person and his photography has won many awards uh, in, in various places. Um, and he does amazing things. Uh, Dr. Tim Matthews uh, has shared with me. And that's, by the way, his, him and his wife and his, his daughter there. Um, and I'm just going to share with you some pictures in the course of our, our meetings here. And I told him I would give him credit if he would let me use them. I see them on Facebook. And I'm like, wow, it's incredible. Makes me want to go to Alaska. Amen. The one of two states I haven't been to, Alaska and Hawaii. Um, I'm going to be in Alaska in May, God willing. Uh, we have a conference that I'm being sponsored to and being, it's being paid for. Um, and it's, a, it's on an Alaskan cruise. We're going to be giving papers on a cruise. I, anyway. The only time I've been on a cruise before has been on one of these conferences, so this is my second experience. I don't go on cruises normally, not that that is a bad thing to do. So history, why is history important? History is important because all life is rooted in history. As human beings, there is no human existence outside of the historical experience. 
I want you to think about it for a moment. What is the present? The sentence I just asked you, the question I just asked you, is already in the past. What I'm about to say is in the future, but what I'm saying right now, as I'm saying it, is already in the past. We live in time and place. That's the way God designed this world. He designed time. And as we live in time, because before that there was no time, right? We, 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 we exist in time and, and place, and history is the fabric of life, and therefore it is important to our identity. It's not that our history makes us who we are. One could argue for that. But certainly history is something that we continue to go back to. We exist in time and space. Our experience and choices through history do shape us and mold us and create the people that we become. Isn't that true? That's the biblical worldview, is that we are shaped by choices that we make in time and place, and those choices will determine our future. So history is important. It's important. The Bible traces God's acts in specific settings over time. That's why geography in the Bible is so important. I know how it is with many of you when you read the Bible. You probably skip over some of those names of places. Before coming to GYC, I was working with a former student of mine, Daniel Arroyo, who is uh, doing, uh, he's publishing uh, Bibles as a business now. The most beautiful Bibles that you can imagine. I held one in my hands here in Louisville at ASI just a few months ago in August. It is the softest, finest leather that you can find on the planet. He gets it from India. It's amazing. They're not cheap Bibles. I told him I kind of want one, but I'm going to spend some time. I spent the last uh, few weeks doing the maps for his new King James Version Bible that is about to be released. And it's fascinating. Have you ever looked at the maps in the back of your Bible? Why are the maps there? Because the Bible is constituted in time and in place. Jesus was here. Well, not in Louisville. But he was here on this planet, right? And he existed in time and space and place. In fact, if you compare the Bible... To the Quran, it is vastly different. We talked about that in the last seminar. I'm not going to repeat that. But what I will say to this, if you take all the place names in the Quran, the entire Quran, and you compare the number of place names with the place names in the Bible, you will already have run out of place names in the Quran by the time you get to Genesis chapter 10. Are you with me? The Bible is constituted in history, and because it's constituted in history, it is about time and place, and it is about God's acts in history with his people. That is the core of the biblical narrative. 
No sacred text of any world religion contains more geographical details, more historical details than the Bible. Because it's his story. It's his story of his intervention in human history from the very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning. And all the way to the last chapter of Revelation, the consummation. By the way, in the Bible, history moves forward. It is linear in its direction. From the beginning, God is revealed as one who is in the beginning, who is in the center and eternal future of human history. It's expressed in different ways, but he inaugurates time in Genesis. He creates the sun and the moon, not as deities, but for times and for, season, for signs and for seasons, for days and years. He sets out the demarcation of the week in seven days and rests with his creation on the seventh calling us to do the same. His sovereignty as creator is fixed on that. And his sovereignty as our creator is tested on that seventh day. This is a completely different concept than the ancient world views that were out there, the mythic views out there. And if you want to read a fascinating book sometime, um, it is by my friend, theologian, not an Adventist, but a profound book entitled, um, sorry, The Bible as Myth? Question mark. And then it goes on to uh, discuss and compare the Bible and the biblical worldview with the mythical worldview of the ancient world. And his argument is that they're literally and specifically, if you look at entire human history and philosophy, there are really only two worldviews. Two. One is God, the God worldview, that God is transcendent outside of human history, but interacting in human history. The other, that God is, sim is simply, or the gods, or God is simply a force that is enveloped in all of nature and human history. There's various elements of that, but Hinduism is, is, is teaching that. Others are teaching that as well. These are the two different worldviews. It goes all the way back to ancient, ancient Egypt. It goes all the way back, probably even further than that. By the way, if we go to Egypt, Egyptian, the Egyptian worldview was very different. It's cyclical in nature. It repeats itself over and over again. Now, it may come across sometimes to you that history repeats itself as well. Part of that is human nature, but I'm not talking about human nature here. I'm talking about the fundamental flow of history. In Egyptian thinking, everything revolved around the sun. And what does the sun do? It rises in the morning. It is birthed in the morning, it travels over the horizon, and it sets at night or dies at night. It passes through the 12 hours of the underworld and comes up rebirthed in the morning. And they had this cosmology that they uh, enacted. This is, this is their idea. There's, there's the sky goddess, Newt, 
with the stars. She's the one that swallows the sun at night. And she's the one that gives birth to the sun in the morning. This cycle, this unending cycle was the basis for Egyptian thinking. All the gods, there were 22,000 of them. All the gods were simply reflections of nature. The Egyptians worshipped nature. They were the first pantheists. Hinduism has simply expanded it to 33 million gods today. But the same idea goes all the way back to Egypt. It is only the monotheistic religions, Judaism, Christianity, and to a certain degree Islam, that has this different view of God as transcendent and outside of nature, as the one who creates nature outside of himself. There's a vast difference, by the way. By the way, this idea of the cycle of life is everywhere. (laughs) It's in the movies. It's in The Lion King. The circle of life, right? Everywhere. This is not simply an innocent thing. This is a worldview that is being taught to you, which is completely contradicting the worldview of Scripture. Because if life is cyclical, then what meaning is there in life? If life is not moving forward toward a purpose, why are we here? This is the big conundrum in our world. By the way, when you go to Egypt, it's interesting, all the mortuary temples, like the Medinet Habu, the Temple of Ramses III, all the mortuary temples, the pyramids, the Valley of the Kings, they're all on the east side of the Nile. I'm sorry, on the west side of the Nile where the sun sets because that's where death takes place. And all the temples, like Karnak Temple and Luxor Temple and all the other temples, they are on the east side of the Nile where the sun rises, where life takes place. That's where life is celebrated. The Egyptians had it convenient that the Nile flowed right through the center of their country and that they could easily have the Nile as the center to their existence. The Nile was also worshipped as a god. Giannis Wright of Harvard University put it this way, the Bible, unlike the other religious literature of the world, is not centered in a series of moral, spiritual, and liturgical teachings, but in the story of a people who lived at a certain time and place. Faith was communicated, in other words, through the forms of history, and unless history is taken seriously, one cannot comprehend biblical faith, which triumphantly affirms the meaning of history. You see, history in and of itself is devoid of meaning. You need something to interpret what is taking place in history, and that's what the Bible gives us. Jesus dying on a cross is utterly meaningless. There were thousands of people in the Roman Empire that died on crosses. What makes Jesus' death on the cross any different than the two that were nailed to the cross next to him on either side? The two thieves? Or the 6,000 that lined the road from Rome to Capua when there was a great rebellion in the Roman Empire? It is Scripture that gives us the meaning of that event in history. It is Scripture that interprets that meaning, and it is important for us to understand that. This is why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 12 through 14, now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? Maybe some of you here have seen a person who has resurrected from the dead. I personally have not had that experience, although I have to say maybe I have. 
I have a former student who's here at ASI who was revived. I'm sorry, we're not at ASI, we're at GYC. Deja vu from August, sorry. He was just revived and has an amazing story to tell. He was dead for quite some time. It's a miracle that he's here today, young man. But Paul is saying to the Greeks and to the Corinthians, there are some of you in the church who say, resurrection, that's impossible. We've not seen it. We've not experienced it. How is this even part of human existence? How can some of you say there is no, in other words, how can some of you say there is no scientific possibility of a resurrection of the dead? He goes on, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation has been in vain and your faith has been in vain. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. The very basis, the very foundation, the very core of Christianity is based on the bodily, historical resurrection of Christ's body on the third day as prophesied by Jesus himself. If that didn't happen, because it is not scientifically possible, then none of us have any reason for being here today. Are you with me? Paul is saying historical matters matter to faith. They're at the core of faith. Now, I'm not here today to prove to you the resurrection of Jesus. I've been to the empty tomb. But I'm not here to talk about that. But what I'm here to talk about today is the reality and the importance of history to the biblical writers and to uh, the biblical worldview. John Calvin, who we spoke about in our last presentation, said this, it is rather a matter of seeing to it that the entire teaching of the gospel is kept in its purity and truth, that the Holy Scriptures are faithfully preached, read, and perused, that God is honored according to the rule given us in them, and that the church is well governed so that the kingdom of Jesus Christ may flourish by the power of his word. If you remove history from scripture and you say those things didn't happen as scripture described, you are taking one of the anchor points of what makes scripture scripture away and you're relegating it to simply another myth. The Protestant reformers, including Calvin, practice what is known as the grammatical historic, the historical grammatical method, also known as the grammatical historical method. What is this? Well, let's look at a definition. I had to put some sophisticated definitions up here. By the way, this is the this is the basis of our interpretation. Uh, in 1986, the World Church voted at annual council what is known as the Rio document in Rio de Janeiro. And this is the basis of how we interpret scripture. We use the historical grammatical method along with the reformers of the past. It is the method of the Reformation developed within the context of the sola scriptura principle for it sought to take seriously the divine human nature of the Bible. Both of those elements, not simply one at the exclusion of the other. That is 
the fact that its message originated through what? This was our last topic, divine inspiration, and that the inspired writers of the Bible communicated that message through the limited means of human languages, Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. The historical grammatical method was concerned with issues such as authorship, who wrote what was written, date of composition, historical background, that's where archaeology and history comes in, and language as these relate to the meaning of the text and finally to the meaning of the Bible as a whole. At each step in interpretation, the controlling principle, what was the controlling principle? The Bible as its own interpreter. We don't read into the Bible. That's eisegesis. We read out of the Bible. That's exegesis. We try to find through careful grammatical study. This is why I teach my theology students at Southern Hebrew. It's a pain for some of them. It was a pain for me. I had to take it two times. First time I took it was in German. Big mistake. I had to translate everything from German into English and learn my vocabulary twice. Second time I took it was a little easier. I'm not the one in our family that's gifted with languages. That would be my wife. So I, 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 I empathize with them. But Hebrew, Martin Luther wrote, is the sheath through which the sword was given. Think about that. The original languages. We are blessed to be able to study the original languages. Luther goes on to say, there would have been no gospel were it not for the study of scripture in their original languages. The Reformation would have never been born. We talked about the Bible in our previous presentation. We will talk about it again here and later. But, but it was through the Protestant Reformation that they went back. Well, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's go. Keep going. Erasmus of Rotterdam. A reformer who, who compiled the Greek text that became the basis for the great Bibles of the Reformation, including Luther's translation, including the King James Version Bible, including the Coverdale Bible, the Bishop's Bible, the Matthew's Bible. All of those, by the way, will be on display at Southern Adventist University in less than two weeks, on January 14, we're opening a new exhibit called From Script to Scripture, The History of the Bible. We have some of the rarest Bibles in existence in the world today. And it is a, I have been, the last year has been a learning curve for me. It has been a delight. I have been learning so much about our, our, our heritage and what we have been given. Let me tell you something. This book, that we hold in our hands and have in our apps. It cost millions of lives for us to have this. You know why Matthew's Bible is called Matthew's Bible? Because John Rogers changed his name to a pseudonym so that maybe he could live through translating the Bible into the English language or producing the Bible in the English language. He used Coverdale's translation. He used 
Tyndale's translation. He compiled uh, the Bible, put it together, and was martyred anyway for it in 1555. We know the story of Tyndale, Wycliffe, others. Erasmus produces this. Listen to what Erasmus of Rotterdam says. By the way, his, 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 uh, his Greek New Testament came out in five editions. Luther used the second. The King James Version Bible used the third. We have the third, original third in leather bound on display in our museum. It's one of the rarest books that we have in the exhibit. Above all, one must hasten to the sources themselves, that is, to the Greeks and the ancients. I'm going to explain this in a moment. Ad fonts, the Latin term, back to the sources. That was the cry of the Renaissance and the period of the Enlightenment. Back to the sources. We have so much available to us today. I forgot my phone, praise the Lord, in my hotel room today. I don't need it today. (laughs) Maybe I do, I don't know. We have them on our devices. But are we really going back to the sources? Or are we drinking from other sources? I'm speaking to myself. My kids will tell you, I'm on my computer all the time. My excuse is work, writing, emails, Emails is a travesty. (laughs) My father didn't have emails in his early career, and I I can tell you his life was different. I remember him as a kid dictating letters to his secretaries to type up on a little device called a tape recorder. None of you know what that is. Some of you know what that is. I don't know. Last year, I counted, because I keep all my stuff, just in case I have to refer to it sometime. 6,500 emails. It's crazy. I'm probably not, don't hold the record anywhere, but 6,500 emails. I mean, and I text too, but that, that hasn't quite hit me as much as the email thing has yet. It's crazy. Anyway, sorry. They didn't have this back then. So what does advance mean? Back to the sources. There were two enlightenment groups. One were the reformers, And one were the secular humanists. The secular humanists went back to the Greek sources. Of course, the reformers did as well. These were learned men. Do not mistake who the reformers were. They were scholars. They were deeply engrossed. They understood Greek philosophy, even though they rejected a lot of it. Luther rejected a lot of it. There was a big discussion uh, of Melanchthon, his his right-hand man, defending Luther, that he accepted some parts of philosophy because one of the great arguments against Luther from the Catholic Church was that he rejected all philosophy. No, they accepted some of it. But the humanists went back to the Greek sources, to Plato, to Socrates, to Aristotle. The reformers went back to the source, the scriptures. And they came up with this principle, among many principles, sola scriptura, 
the Bible alone. It wasn't that they didn't appreciate reason or experience or other ways of knowing, but everything they felt must be subjected to Scripture. Scripture was the test to which everything else must rely. Here are pictures of some of them. God willed, said Melanchthon, who's pictured there in the center, God willed that history should be written for us by the fathers and prophets in the best order and with the number of years carefully handed down. This is the singular, glory, the singular glory of the church that nowhere else in the entire human race has an older series of reigns and times been found, nor does any other people have the numbers of years reckoned back so certainly. These were not only theologians, they were historians. They were not only historians, they were students of prophecy. They were carefully looking at the numbers of the Bible. They were going back and they were going forward, trying to figure out what was happening in their time. You see, the Adventist church did not invent the prophetic interpretations that we have. We inherited a huge percentage of them and simply have built on it from the Reformation. You read through Froome's Prophetic Faith of Our Fathers, those four or five volumes, and you will see that it was all there. A lot of it was there for hundreds of years. They went back to the Bible. They rejected tradition. By the way, worldviews are basically founded on these five different areas. We use all of them, of course. We're in all of them. We're engrossed in all of them. None of them are wrong in and of themselves. But what happens is, what happens when one takes precedence over the other? You see, as we've said in our last presentation, in the Catholic Church with time, in the Roman Church with time, tradition replaced the Bible, or at least was put first on the same par with the Bible, on par with the Bible, and then eventually it went above, so that the Catholic Church had to add books to the Bible in order to defend some of its traditions. That's what we just got done talking about. The Protestant reformers rejected tradition and went back to sola scriptura. They didn't reject reason and experience and culture, but they believed that the Bible was above all of those in some way and would transform all of those through the authority of its divine inspiration. We are part of culture. We can't help it, right? We don't even know we're part of culture. It's like asking a fish, what does water feel like? If a fish could talk, you're like, what's water? That's his environment. That's what he lives in, right? Or she lives in. Do fishes have she and he? I think so. Anyway, so... This is, this, is, this is just, you know, this is the environment that we live in. We, we live in culture, but today culture is determining many things in our lives. And it's so accessible. <laughs> it's consuming us. We flip through it. We watch it. We are enthralled by it. Experience, reason. The age of the Enlightenment focused on experience and reason, primarily. Tradition was rejected. The church was rejected eventually. The Bible was rejected. 
everything focused on rationalism and empiricism. That's the growth of the scientific method that occurred in this time period. And it was applied to the Bible. Now, what is, what is, <laughs> what are these things? What is a worldview? It's the glasses through which you view the world. I, I, I had to, I was up last night looking for some wild pictures of glasses. So forgive me for some of these. Some of us have different glasses, right? I have a very plain pair. I just had to buy a new pair because my eyes are, well, I don't know. When you hit your 40s, it all, I was the only person with perfect eyesight in my family until I was 42, my extended family, my immediate family, and now look at me. I had to switch to progressives recently. Glasses. They're the lenses, so worldview is the lenses through which we view things. Have you ever tried on somebody else's glasses? Can distort things, right? I just took mine off. You guys all look very blurry now. It makes me feel a little more comfortable up here. Less, 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 you know, nervous. But glasses, worldview, how we view the world around us. The Enlightenment impacted how they viewed the world. Three principles impacted the Enlightenment. The principle of correlation, which was based on naturalism or philosophical naturalism. That is, that the world only exists because of the natural laws that we can observe in the world today. These natural laws are what we study. Cause and effect. The cycle of cause and effect. That is all that we can know. The closed continuum indicates that this cycle of cause and effect is closed and that there is no divine intervention in the natural laws of our world. Science must be studied as if God did not exist. The principle of analogy took this a step further and said, we observe what we observe in the world today and based on that observation and based on our experience... Empiricism is based on our experience. We can determine what could have taken place and what did not take place. In other words, do we see a worldwide flood taking place in the world today? If we do not see that taking place in the world today, we can assume that it was unlikely that it took place in the past. The principle of analogy interprets the past based on the present, based on our present experience. The principle of criticism, that is the key to it all. Our universities, I'm using a general term, in this country, around the world, universities are based on the idea of critical thinking. You heard that term before? It's a loaded term. Rene Descartes, the philosopher who came up with the idea of methodological doubt or the principle of criticism, rationalism was an idea that was around for a long time. It's not that we don't use reason, but it's elevating reason to a position where it becomes the authority for determining truth. Another term is autonomous reason, reason alone. Isn't that interesting? What is sola scriptura? The Bible alone. So autonomous reason, reason alone. René Descartes, the French philosopher, decided that he could know nothing 
he knew that he himself existed, so he began with that premise, and then he moved out from that and said, I can accept only that which I can see and, whether, and, and what, I can, what I can rationally see, experience, not experience so much, but what I can reason out. Everything was approached with methodological doubt. The Bible was approached with methodological doubt. Based on the first two principles, miracles, divine intervention, doesn't fit with principle of correlation. If an event in history cannot be corroborated outside of the Bible, it didn't happen. Methodological doubt. The Bible was guilty until proven innocent by external sources. It's interesting that historians do not, do not approach other documents and history that way. Interesting. Egyptologists do not look at Thutmose III's 17 campaigns into Canaan, which are documented in Egyptian sources, and say, now we have to look and see whether that campaign is documented in Canaan, in Palestine. We, we have to see there. If it's not documented there, it didn't happen. No, of course it happened. But the Bible, if it cannot be corroborated from outside sources, it didn't take place. This is the basic premise and argument that you're going to hear again and again. The gentleman I was speaking with yesterday evening, who asked me the question about the Exodus, had taken a class and was told by his professor that everything that we find on the internet and on Wikipedia indicates that the Exodus never took place. The driver of his vehicle was a Jewish man. What? I was taught my whole life that that's where our people came from. What do I do with this? Well, because the Exodus is not mentioned in Egyptian sources, scholars for years have said it didn't take place. By the way, I'm not going to go into that topic right now. I can tell you there's reasons why it's not in Egyptian sources. I would refer to you to a seminar that I did a few years ago Five presentations on the Exodus here at GYC. It's on Audioverse. All right, let's continue. Methodological doubt is a serious, serious thing. It is the very opposite of what we are called to do when we approach life through Scripture. There's a whole seminar here I wish I could attend by my good friend, Elder Jay Gallimore, on faith. How do we approach life? By faith. By faith. If Noah had based his actions on what he saw, what he experienced, or what he could think was rational, we would not be here today. He believed and had faith in the Word of God. The scientists of his day said, rain? What are you talking about? We haven't seen rain in our entire lives. Empirically, it's impossible. Flooding the whole earth? What are you talking? You've gone bonkers? No. By the way, it wasn't Noah's faith that saved the world. It was his obedience that saved the world. 
he obediently acted on his faith and built the ark, and that's what saved the world. We can have a mental, philosophical assent to some truth, but if we don't live that truth, where are we? Where are we? This is what I've been describing to you here as the historical critical method. Not the historical grammatical, the historical critical method. It has basically determined scholarship for the last... Are we almost out of time? Oh my, I'm in trouble. When does this end? 15 minutes. Okay, I'm moving fast. The historical critical method. Period of exegesis and interpretation of the Bible begins with influences stemming from the age of the Enlightenment and rationalism in the late 18th century. Scholars who align themselves uh, with or subscribe to the historical critical method speak of two epochs of interpretive methods, a pre-critical period of interpretation, that's the Reformation, and a new critical or historical critical period beginning in the 18th century. Since the 18th century, we're now in which century? the 21st century, for the last 250 years, this is the method that has dominated biblical scholarship in the world. Among scholars, this is what I was taught when I was at the University of Arizona. First thing that my professor said in the first day of class was, I know many of you have grown up in churches, many of you have gone to synagogues, you're now at a state university, and here we learn what really happened in the Bible. First statement. 120 students in the class. Within the first month of the class, there were students that were crying leaving that class. The rug of faith had been pulled out from under them. And if you think that that's not happening at your community college or your state university, you don't know what's happening. That's exactly what's happening. When men in their finite judgment find it necessary to go into an ex exp examination of scriptures to define that which is inspired and that which is not, they have stepped before Jesus to show him a better way than he has led us. You see, once you start criticizing the Bible and determining that this is historical and this is not, where does that process end? You never find the writers of the Bible doing that, ever. You never find Ellen White casting doubt on the Bible, ever. You just don't. In fact, this is, this is her. I'm reading from her. I take the Bible just as it is, as the inspired word. I believe its utterances in an entire Bible Men arise who think they find something to criticize in God's word. They lay it bare before others as evidence of superior wisdom. These men are, many of them, smart men, learned men. They have eloquence and talent. The whole life work of whom is to unsettle minds in regard to the inspiration of the scriptures. They influence many to see as they do, and the same work is passed on from one to another, just as Satan designed it should be. That's strong. But that's the responsibility professors have in their classrooms. It's a huge responsibility. Another quote, quickly. Beginning at Genesis, this is continuing the reading. Beginning at Genesis, they give up that which they deem questionable, and their minds lead on, for Satan will lead to any length they may follow in their criticism, and they see something to doubt in the whole scriptures. 
Their faculties of criticism become sharpened by exercise, and they can rest on nothing with a certainty. Does that sound like our generation today? After two and a half centuries, do we have any future further certainty today? You try to reason with these men, but your time is lost. They will exercise their power of ridicule even upon the Bible. They even become mockers, and they would be astonished if you put it to them in that light. Brethren, cling to your Bible as it reads and stop your criticisms in regard to its validity and obey the word, and not one of you will be lost. Friends, what we're dealing with here are eternal issues. You see, with the historical critical method, without direct intervention, there is no divine revelation. There are no miracles. There is no savior. Jesus was just a man. There was no resurrection. That was something that was concocted. And because there's no resurrection, there's no certainty of a second coming. We think about it. That's the logical conclusion, isn't it? By the way, if you give up a belief in creation, the logical conclusion is, will there be a recreation at the end? Will God take another 600 million years to do it through theistic evolution? Or will he do what he says he's going to do in the twinkling of an eye? These are the issues that we're facing here. And we don't do so blindly. I'm a scientist. I work as a scientist. The Bible opens to me a way of viewing the universe that would be closed to me if I were simply encapsulated within the closed continuum of philosophical naturalism. The Bible doesn't make me closed-minded. It opens my mind to the greater reality of God who is working behind the scenes. We call that the great controversy. Here's a quote from a recent uh, Old Testament scholar, if you th think that this is just a science issue. Statements about God are above historical evaluations, except as information about who made those statements. In the modern age, history, but notice modern age, history must be understood and described este deus non delatua, as though God did not exist. That's how history must be studied, he says. Then he continues on the, next, on the same page, from this perspective, the biblical narratives on Israel's first kings will not find it easy to gain the trust of the historian. Why? Because God plays an active role in the Bible. God gets personally involved. He sends prophets. He defeats enemies. What do you make of this biblical narrative? And so the French Revolution was the outcome of a hundred years of criticism. The French Revolution, let's read a quote from Great Controversy quickly. The atheistical power that ruled in France during the revolution and the reign of terror did wage such a war against God and his holy word as the world had never witnessed. The worship of the deity was abolished by the National Assembly. Bibles were collected and publicly burned with every possible manifestation of scorn. The law of God was trampled underfoot. The institutions of the Bible were abolished. We're going to talk about that in our last presentation because that's exactly what's happening today. It began then. What did they erect? What did they carry through the streets of Paris and inaugurate her in Notre Dame itself? A prostitute was placed on a litter and carried a prostitute for purpose because they were also what is one of the institutions of the Bible. Marriage is an institution of the Bible. A prostitute was placed on a litter, and she was inaugurated as the goddess of reason in Notre Dame. 
Sorry, there's Notre Dame. This church that had just been finished by the previous king in gratitude to God for saving his life from a disease that he had was made as a mausoleum for the philosophers of the French Revolution. Rousseau is buried there. The street in front of it is called Rue Descartes, after René Descartes, the theologian we just came and talked about. If, pardon? Yes, that's the same church that was, was uh, burned last year, yes, unfortunately. Beautiful church. I'm glad I was in it many times. Friedrich Nietzsche, a German theologian, 1844 to 1900. When Friedrich Nietzsche came around in the 19th century, he was the son of a Lutheran pastor, a devout minister of the gospel. Two things dramatically affected his life. When he was a young boy, his father became very ill, and his father suffered greatly under that illness. Nietzsche, as a boy, watched his father suffer, this man of God who lived his entire life to serve the Lord, and he just could not wrap his mind around why God would allow something like that to happen. We, we often deal with those questions, don't we? But he decided after his father's death, some years later, to pursue the ministry. And he enrolled at the university, where in that first year he was taught the historical critical method. And the rug of faith was pulled out from under his feet. He left a devastated man. He dropped out of school, and a few years later, he started studying philosophy. Became one of the greatest philosophers of the, well, I guess 19th century. But influenced this generation more than any other philosopher probably in history. Nietzsche is called the, the father of existentialism. If we want to move that term a little further, the father of postmodernism, if you will. His realization that God is dead, this was his famous dictum, Gott ist tot, was not a declaration of triumph. It was not a declaration of we finally made it through the Enlightenment. No, it was a declaration of lament and pain. The realization that in the thinking world, God no longer matters, God is dead, was for him the most devastating realization of his life. Where does men turn to now? Nietzsche's uncompromising insistence that if God is dead, morality is dead as well. If there is no God that controls or that we are responsible to, everything becomes relative. Are you with me? This is, this is the mantra of our age. Martin Heidecker, another theologian, German theologian, later writing about the word of Nietzsche, says this. This is what Nietzsche was wrestling with. If God as the suprasensory, the God who is beyond the senses, if God as the suprasensory ground and goal of all reality is dead, then nothing more remains to which man can cling and by which he can orient himself. What do we orient ourselves to? This is the crisis we're facing today. Nietzsche came up with the idea of an übermensch, a super, well, it's not really a good translation, a superman, but that somehow we have to overcome this reality. We have to overcome this reality. He turned to music, he turned to art. 
He loved Richard, uh, Richard Wagner, Richard Wagner, Wagner, sorry. The German is better. Um, he was a German composer. By the way, he became a very influential force in the philosophy of Hitler and the Nazi regime. Nietzsche did. The idea of a super human race. Then came World War I, and then came World War II. My family lived during this period of history. My aunt, my mom's sister, when 9-11 happened, I told her never to repeat this in public in America, and I'm saying it now here, but this is what she said. She says, that's nothing. When I was nine years old, it wasn't just a matter of two buildings. It was entire cities that were gone. We can't comprehend that. We weren't there. I heard about it from my parents and my grandparents. <sighs> Devastation. Look at this. Look at this. What do you do in the 20th century? That is in our lifetime. What do you do in the 20th century? When deaths in the 20th century caused by war are the highest in history. After the age of the Enlightenment. After the promise of progress and truth through science alone. We have this. Millions gone for totalitarian regimes that promised egalitarianism and a super race. So that's the Enlightenment. Friends, we need the Bible as never before. We need the Bible as never before. It is only scripture that can pull us out of the reality of the sinful world and the human depravity that we all will face if we reject God. That is the lesson of modernism, and that is the travesty of where we are today. I want to end. Can I end? I'm two minutes over, I know. I'm going to, three more minutes, okay? Archaeology has given us some great hope. These are some of my students. Some of them are here at GYC. And uh, look at the smiles on their faces. Look at their leaps of joy at the end of the season when we found some amazing things. What did we find? Well, we found some amazing things. Seal impressions that contain the names of individuals mentioned in the Bible only in passing once or twice. This is Eliakim. Who is Eliakim? He's mentioned in Isaiah chapter 17, uh, 37, 1 through 2. And if it was when King Hezekiah heard it that he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and went into the house of the Lord, then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, the chief of the palace, and Shebna the scribe, and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth to Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos. We have four people mentioned in this particular two verses of the Bible. In 2016, this seal impression was announced on the media as being found in Jerusalem. The first time a seal impression of King Hezekiah ever was found in the archaeological record. That is, in an actual dig in situ. Less than 10 feet away from Hezekiah's personal seal, this is actually a piece of mud that's about the size of your thumbnail, where he would have sealed his seal into, like wax, you know, kind of thing. This is mud that's now dried. Less than 10 feet away from this seal, along with other seals, was found the most amazing thing. I remember when I got the phone call, I was crazy with excitement. I had heart palpitations. 
I had to immediately get the online journal uh, before it arrived in the mail so I could read it for myself. Paid a lot of money for that. But this fragment of a seal impression was discovered and announced in 2018. Now, two years ago, but less than a year ago. It was found in 2009, but in 2018 it was published because it hadn't been studied carefully. And we now believe that this is none other than the seal impression of Isaiah, who is called prophet on the seal. What makes this remarkable is that in the verse we just read, Isaiah and Hezekiah are contemporaneous, aren't they? And what is remarkable is that historical criticism has denied the contemporaneity of Isaiah with Hezekiah for centuries. Why? Because Isaiah predicts Cyrus the Great as the conqueror of Babylon by name. And that, according to historical criticism, cannot happen because that's a divine prophecy that is foreknowledge of what will take place in the future. And if you cannot have foreknowledge of what will take place in the future because we have no connection with the divine, then Isaiah has to be redated to a later period after the event. Are you with me? That's what they do with Daniel, by the way, as well. Daniel is dated to the second century, not the sixth century, to do away with uh, the bulk of his prophecies. But now, for the first time in history, we have less than 10 feet away from each other. We have two individuals, Hezekiah the king and Isaiah his prophet. Contemporaneous, same level of destruction. There's no question today that Isaiah was a contemporary of Hezekiah. The two were found next to each other. We can go on, and we don't have time. I will just, uh, this is another presentation. But I just want to say this, that today we know of over 100 individuals that have been confirmed from the Old and New Testament through archaeological work. Through seals, some of them are kings and emperors, some of them queens, some of them military officers, court officials. Some are just scribes that are mentioned in passing. In 2008, we found the oldest Hebrew inscription in history in the archaeological record uh, as we were working with Southern Adventist University and the Hebrew University in Israel. It made the cover of Biblical Archaeology Review. We found a few years later the second, same level, So the second inscription from the same time period, it contained the name Eshbaal, which is the same name as one of Saul's sons. The king, actually, that became king after Saul was not David. There was a rivalry between David and Eshbaal for two years before David became fully king. And this elicited an interview with the prime minister of Israel. Our work has been on the cover of National Geographic, we received a National Geographic grant, not because of anything that we did, but because of what God does. Amen. There's not a site that I go to and work, to, work at that I don't pray before I go. I don't know what's under the ground. None of us know what's under the ground, and, but he does. And so we're able to make some pretty amazing discoveries and connections Last two years ago in 2017, when the Museum of the Bible opened in Washington, D.C., a $500 million new museum focusing on the Bible. Some of you have heard about it. Some of you have been there. Our exhibit on that site of Kirbet Kayafa, which overlooks the Valley of Elah, was in the basement opening that exhibit um, for the first time. And uh, I was there for the grand opening of this museum as a result of that. In closing, I simply want to say this. 
Paul says, we see through a glass darkly. It's true. We have to approach life with humility. The reality, this is another amazing picture by my friend, Dr. Tim Matthews, that he took up in Alaska. This won an award, actually. The reality of the heavens is only reflected poorly on earth. And it is tainted by the effects of sin. And it is our goal and our hope as we study God's word to get a more clear picture of heavenly realities and the kingdom that God is planning for us. A kingdom that will not pass away, but that will last forever. We're going to study prophecy in our next presentation. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we want to thank you today for being with us. We want to thank you for your word. Today in 2000, well, last year in 2019, the Bible was still the best-selling book in the world. Postmodernism, modernism, the historical critical method has not changed that fact. But we have a great work to do. There are two billion people on this planet who have not even heard the name Jesus, let alone know what the Bible is. Humble our hearts, open our minds to heavenly realities so that we can fulfill the mission that you've given us. As we look at prophecy in this next seminar, Lord, I pray that you would bless us. Because if history has been attacked, certainly prophecy has as well. Those are the two pillars upon which your word rests. Guide us. We thank you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.